Good morning. I was trying to milk out my uh, sprained ankle from the last time I was up here so I could get that recliner chair and the, and the little footrest, but Mitch wouldn't let me get away with it. So uh, I'm going to be standing through this this morning. Um, please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. You'll find that in the Pew Bible on page 1259. That's 1259. The title of the message is Born of God. I've been asked by a dear brother in Christ and a senior saint in our fellowship to preach on the subject of the new birth. This morning I will be approaching this topic of study exegetically as well as topically as we look at various passages of Scripture dealing with the subject of the new birth. We will be traversing through the pages of Scripture in such a way as to survey through the Gospel of John and touch upon these great truths found in God's Word, what it means to be born again. It is my heart's desire this Lord's Day to thread together these gems of truth in such a way as to form a priceless necklace, causing each one of us to hold and to cherish these truths each day of our Christian lives. I hope and pray the sermon would cause each one of us here today to examine our lives and our hearts, whether this is the first time you've ever attended a Christian church, or you've been coming out for some time but have never made that true commitment to Jesus Christ in your life. Whether you have walked an aisle, said a sinner's prayer, been baptized, made a profession of faith, or served in the church in any capacity at all. This message is for each one of us here today. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3, unless you have been born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. So please stand, if you're able, for the reading of the word of God. John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those were who his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You may be seated. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his holy word. The Apostle John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had much to say concerning the new birth. So let us begin with this simple question. What does it mean to be born again? The answer is simply this. It is the life of God. It is the life of the true and living God, living in the soul of a man or a woman. Point number one in your outline. The new birth is the sovereign creation of God, of spiritual life. 
deep down within the once barren womb of the human heart. In other words, we are born with a vacuum deep down in our souls, always trying to satisfy the desires of our hearts. We are born empty, always seeking things that would fulfill and complete our lives. We are born spiritually dead, without the spirit of life of God within us, helping us to see and to hear the things of God. When we are born into this world, we have physical life, but we do not have the spiritual life of God living within us. Thus, Jesus says, we must be born again. The new birth is A, the impregnation of the human heart with the life of God by the Spirit of God. It is God creating spiritual life, eternal life, abundant life within the empty vacuum of the human heart. John 10, verse 9 through 10. The new birth is the conception of new life in a man or a woman's heart where there hasn't been spiritual life. John 1, verse 13. The new birth is the resurrection of the spiritually dead sinner into a new spiritual creation in Christ, repenting of our sins, believing in Christ, and confessing him as our Lord and Savior as we experience newness of life. John 5:25. The new birth is the impartation of eternal life into the once empty soul, causing the Spirit of God to indwell us, correcting us, guiding us, and instructing us as we live out a God-glorifying life in Christ. John 4, verse 14. The new birth is instantaneous. It happens at a moment in time. It is not something that is progressive. And whether we can look back and define when that point of time was, nevertheless, it did occur in a point in time when we entered through the narrow gates. The new birth is a supernatural work of God, and nothing we could have done in and of ourselves could have accomplished such a great work of mercy and grace. John chapter 6, verse 39. Only God could cause such a miracle in one's life. The new birth is not an external work that puts a shine on the outward veneer or facade of one's life, but a great supernatural work deep down within the human heart and soul, where the life of God comes to indwell in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The new birth is an eternal work, where once you have been born again, you cannot be unborn. It is eternal life that comes to reside within us as we experience a taste of heaven while living on the face of this earth with all the promises and with all the assurances that come from being an adopted child of God. The new birth is a saving work that produces repentance and saving faith as we confess Jesus Christ as Lord and put all our trust and hope in him and his great work of redemption on the cross for our salvation. Let me conclude my first point by saying this. This is what the new birth is. 
It is the greatest miracle God ever performs. It is the most life-saving, life-changing, soul-transforming, radical experience you will ever experience in your life. You see, the new birth is not experientialism. It is not something that just comes and goes, or a feeling, or just a change on some kind of behavior pattern. It is the spirit of the living God that comes to live within your heart and soul. The spirit of God produces conviction of sin where there wasn't at one time. The spirit of God produces obedience where we desire to please and honor Christ with every aspect of our lives, whether it's our relationships, whether it's in our jobs, or how we choose our friends. The Spirit of God produces an overflow of gratitude and thankfulness in one's heart as we live out our lives to glorify and honor Him in everything, in every aspect of our lives. Let us pray before we look at God's Word. Gracious Father, I thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to preach your Word. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would, would go out in power, that you would power your word, Lord God, that you would draw people to yourself, that you would strengthen your people who have made commitments to you, Lord, and that you would draw those, Lord, who have been listening and hearing about Christ and the gospel, that you would make it a reality within their hearts and souls. Father, we leave these things in your hands. We pray, Lord, that you would speak through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three passages of Scripture I want to look at this morning in this most important doctrine of the Christian faith, the new birth, or if you will, being born again. We will be looking at John chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and John chapter 5, verses 20 through 25. In the beginning of John's Gospel, chapter 1 begins with what is called a prologue, which means it is an introduction. The first 18 verses really lay out the groundwork for the entirety of the Gospel. And so contained in this prologue are some critically important verses that speak directly on the new birth. We read in John chapter 1, verse 11, concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, that he came to his own, and those, were who his, and those who were his own did not receive him. How strange. The one who created this world. The one who created every human life. The one who came into this world to seek and to save and to redeem a people for his very own. They did not recognize him as the second member of the Godhead, the Son of God, the Lord over heaven and earth. And so we see he was met with great unbelief and great opposition, most strangely enough, by those who were the most religious of that day. I guess some things have never changed. As the nation of Israel, the Pharisees, the scribes, the chief priests, were the most threatened by the preaching and teaching of Christ as they responded with great opposition to the way and the truth and the light of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 12, 
John shows us point two on your outline, the human perspective in our salvation. There we read, but as many as received him, as many as did receive him into their hearts as their personal Lord and Savior, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Meaning that before this, no matter how religious they were, no matter what their religious background was, no matter how great the teaching that they were under, whether they kept Jewish traditions or they were very generous with their tithes in the temple, they did not know the true and living God until, until they received Jesus Christ into their own hearts. And the verse says, And it is to them that he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And to believe in Christ's name is to put one's trust exclusively and completely in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for our salvation. So this verse leads us to this question. How does this come about? How does this work out in our lives to believe upon Christ? And in verse 13, what John does is he turns the coin to the other side and he allows us to look at salvation from a divine perspective, not from our human perspective. You see, from our perspective, we receive Christ. From our perspective, we repent and believe upon his name. And that is true. But none of us can deny who are saved, who the Spirit of God lives within us, is that we've experienced this human perspective in our lives. We found ourselves putting our faith and trust in Christ. We have found ourselves repenting and believing and confessing him as our Lord in our lives. However, from the divine perspective, we see what a sovereign miracle salvation is. And its source and its power is from the Lord. And we read in verse 13, who were born, this is referring to the new birth, this is referring to the spiritual birth from above. The Apostle John now states three negatives and one positive in this new birth experience. The first negative, he says, is who were born not of blood, meaning who were born not from human descent, mattering not who your parents are or any human relationships in your family would be. You see, God has many children, but he does not have any grandchildren. No one is automatically brought into the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter whether your mother and father are saved or not, even though I would say that is a great, great blessing from God. However, it does not bring us into a saving relationship with God. We will all stand before the Lord, and we will all have to give an account of our lives. John is saying, the new birth is not of blood. It is not of physical descent. And if anyone in that day could have boasted in their physical lineage, it would have been the Jews of that day. They told Jesus that Abraham was their father, 
as though that gave them some kind of birthright into the kingdom of God. But Jesus says in John 8, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Meaning that he was God, that he created Abraham. Now he mentions a second negative. He says, not of the will of the flesh. And the will of the flesh refers to the power of man, trying to pull himself up into a saving relationship with God out of some kind of religious efforts or activities. It speaks of man keeping ritual and routine and trying to justify oneself and earn favor with God. And before God saved me, that was the story of my life, keeping religious rituals and ceremonies and doing all these things to try to be right with God. But until God put his spirit in my heart and gave me a new heart, then I truly came to know the true and living God. But no matter how committed the will of the flesh is, the fact of the matter is, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There are none righteous. No, not even one of us. There are none that seek after God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all have turned to our own way. And the wrath of God abides on all men until the new birth, until the spiritual birth from above. Salvation is only by the mercy and the grace of God. Think about it. If Jesus Christ wouldn't have came to this earth and lived a perfect life on our behalf that we could never do in our own strength, in our own way, if he wouldn't have been nailed to the cross and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins and raised on the third day, and seated at the right hand of God and interceding on our behalf, we would have no hope. We would have nothing to look forward to. We would have no assurance in our lives. But through the great redemptive work of Jesus Christ for us, on our behalf, we are declared perfect and righteous before God through our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now there's a third negative here in this text. John says, who were born not of blood, not of the will of the flesh. And now he mentions, nor of the will of man. This testifies to the sovereignty of God in salvation. No person's salvation can be traced back to one's own initiative or one's choice of one's own free will. Even though in verse 12, we see very clearly that we must receive Christ and believe in Christ. And this is what John shows us as the human perspective in our salvation. This is something we can all relate to. We can hold on to. This is something that was real in our lives. But John wants us to see the other side of the coin. He wants us to see God working in and through our lives and through the situations that come through our lives as we see the divine perspective in verse 13. There is no greater truth that defines and clarifies this truth in verse 12. This is where John states the one positive truth concerning our salvation. 
where God must be the initiator and the cause of our salvation. That's why John concludes this passage by stating this one positive. But of God. James 1 verse 18 says, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of God, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. You see, the Holy Spirit of God must give the sinner, the one who is dead in their trespasses and sins, the gift of repentance and saving faith, and activate their will so their will will believe in Jesus Christ and confess him as Lord in their lives. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his grace, great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this is what the Apostle John is saying to us in this passage before us, that we are born again, not of blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We see the same pattern even in our sanctification. Uh, please turn to Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. Philippians 2, verses 12 through 13. God's word says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. There is the human perspective. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work of his good pleasure. I got to say, I have matured and grown in my walk with Christ and my understanding of theological truths, especially through this passage of Scripture. I see that there is such a great work of God in and through our lives as he draws us to himself into a saving relationship. I really believe that God has sanctified me through this study, as I've seen throughout the New Testament scriptures, how there is God working in and through both this human perspective that we experience, and there is this divine perspective as God is working in and through the circumstances of our lives, drawing us closer to him. My conclusion to this second point is to God be the glory. Now please turn with me uh, to John chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. As we move into the flow of the Gospel of John, stepping out of the prologue and into this great interaction between the most distinguished teacher of Israel of that day, a man named Nicodemus and our Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 3, verse 1, we read, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. And let us stop right there for one minute. In Jesus' day, there was approximately 6,000 Pharisees. They were the most religious people of Israel. They were 
there were different levels of commitment among those who were the Jews of that day, and none stricter in their devotion to the word of God and to the kingdom of God than the Pharisees. In fact, the word Pharisee in its root word means separatist. One who had separated themselves from the world and were totally devoted to the things of God. So we read in the text before us, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. You see, within those 6,000, there were 71 who were members of the Sanhedrin, which were the ruling body of Israel. And Nicodemus was one of those 71 rulers of the people. And we see in verse 10, it says, the teacher of Israel. Definite article, the teacher of Israel. No one knew the Old Testament better than Jesus, than in Jesus' day than Nicodemus. Nobody knew the Old Testament better than Jesus. That is true. No one had a more predominant position in the religious establishment than him. And yet there was something, something empty. There was a vacuum deep down within his heart as he listened to the words of Christ, causing him to seek out our Lord and find out what was missing in his life as he was being drawn by the power of the words of Christ. We read in verse 2, this man, Nicodemus, came to him, Jesus, by night. And the reason for this was because he was the most predominant leader of that day. And to come during the daytime would have been embarrassing and would have caused him great trouble among the rest of the religious leaders. So he comes to Christ by night for a private and intimate encounter. And we continue through this verse, too, as Nicodemus says to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We see Nicodemus in the process of discovering that Jesus was far more than a teacher sent by God, but he was God in human flesh come to teach and to do much more than that, but he had come to redeem lost sinners. And in verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And whenever Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, he means that what I got to say to you is of the utmost importance. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us point blank in this verse of Scripture, unless we are born again and experience the new birth, we will never see, much less enter the kingdom of God. No religious classes, no sacraments, no good works, no position on the face of this earth can merit favor into the kingdom of God. No denomination, no church membership, no religion can give you eternal life. There is only one place to receive eternal life and, it is, and to gain access to the kingdom of God, and it is through saving faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and in him and in him alone. John chapter 14, verse 6 says, 
Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to my Father except through me. So Nicodemus must be born again to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But Nicodemus did not understand what Jesus was saying. In verse 4, Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? You see, Nicodemus was thinking on a physical level. He could only think of a physical birth. But verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You see, the kingdom of God is that sphere of salvation into which the sinner who receives and believes upon Christ and confesses him as Lord comes entering in where they experience forgiveness of sins, an overwhelming sense of peace and hope and joy in one's heart. Now in this verse, when Jesus says, unless you are born of water and the Spirit, he is not saying that one must be baptized in order to be saved. There is nowhere in Scripture where water is referred to inside a a woman's womb. It is always referred to a cleansing or a washing. In this account, point number three on your outline, Jesus is giving us two symbols of the Holy Spirit of God. In verse 5, he gives us the symbol of water. And in verse 8, he gives us the symbol of wind. And the ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit and the miracle of the new birth are likened unto water and wind. And when one is born again, this new birth comes by the power of the Holy Spirit of God within a person's heart and soul. We first see it likened unto water in verse 5, meaning there is a cleansing that takes place. There is a purification that occurs in one's heart. For no physical water can wash away spiritual sin. Physical water can only remove physical dirt. But we have spiritual dirt. We are spiritually defiled in our hearts and soul. And only the spiritual agent can remove a spiritual defilement. And that spiritual agent is the Holy Spirit of God. We see this powerful washing of the Holy Spirit in Titus chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 where God's word tells us he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And in the new birth, what takes place, there is a washing There is a cleansing from the top of our head with all our thoughts and all the things that motivate us to the bottom of our souls, the desires of our hearts, the things that we live for, where all our sins, which are so offensive to a holy God, are washed away and purged 
and we are made pure and clean and faultless before the throne of grace. This is the miracle of the new birth. It gives us a new position of acceptance before a holy God in heaven. In verse 5 we read, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now look at verse 6. Jesus says that that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. What our Lord is saying is there needs to be two births. You need to be born physically, and then you must be born spiritually from above, or you will never see or enter the kingdom of God. To be born again is for a new spiritual life to begin in one's heart and soul. It is for eternal life to be deposited down within the depths of one's being. In verse 7, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. You see, no one had ever spoken to Nicodemus like this. No one had ever spoken the word of God to the heart of one of these religious leaders like this. And it is the same message that our Lord spoke to this religious leader, Nicodemus, that, is, that the great evangelist of the 18th century, George Whitfield, preached up and down the eastern seacoasts of our great country to the religious people of that day during the greatest time in our country's history where thousands upon thousands during the Great Awakening heard this same message from Whitfield and came to faith in Jesus Christ. And it is the same message that needs to be preached in our churches today. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. It is very important for us who study God's word, and we all should, to have a solid theological understanding and understand doctrine and the truths of God's word. But that studying and those doctrines and theologies should be rooting us and grounding us and causing us to have a more profound love for Christ and for God's people and for his church and for the lost in this world. If our theology and doctrine is not causing that to happen and to be lived out in our lives, we need to pray and examine the motives of why we study God's word. It is for the edification of the church and the building up of our brothers and sisters in Christ. This being born again is not a theological understanding. It is a life that is lived with a love and a passion for Christ and his people and his church and for those who do not know the Lord. Now let us continue in this passage. As Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse 8, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it but do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. We get the picture here. You can't control the wind. None of us can. Only God. None of us can send the wind, and none of us can stop the wind. The disciples learned this truth as they witnessed Christ rebuke the wind 
and the wind stopped. Only God can do that. So it is in the operation of the Holy Spirit in the new birth. Jesus tells Nicodemus that the wind cannot be seen. It is impossible. And so is the Holy Spirit of God. You can feel the wind's presence, right? You can feel the power of the wind. You can see the results of the wind and its effects. I know I certainly have. I work for the utility. I've stood out in 75, 80 mile an hour winds. You can sense its power. You can see its effects as the telephone poles come down and the lines hit the ground and the trees come down and everything gets blown around. I can testify to that power of the wind. I can also testify to the power of the Holy Spirit because 12 years ago, the Holy Spirit blew upon my heart and caused me to fall to the ground and repent because God gave me eyes to see who I truly was and who the God of heaven and earth was. And it caused me to repent and believe and to confess Jesus Christ as my Lord. And from that day on, my life has never been the same again. Conclusion. There is nothing like the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, this, in, this uh, ends our, the encounter between Nicodemus and Jesus. And I hope and pray it begins an encounter with us and the Lord Jesus Christ today. Please turn to our last passage of Scripture and my final point of this sermon as we take a quick look at John chapter 5, verses 20 through 25. John chapter 5, verses 20 through 25. The fifth chapter of John's Gospel is one of the most powerful chapters in the entire Bible that sets forth the deity, the supremacy, and the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. And among many of the startling claims in this chapter concerning Christ, the most powerful and most glorious of those claims is that Jesus alone can raise the dead soul of the sinner and bring it to newness of life. John chapter 5, beginning in verse 20, says, For the Father loves the Son, and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will not marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead, and that's in verse 21. Let me repeat that. I want to repeat verse 21. This is an amazing verse. For just as the Father raises the dead. Now this speaks of both physical resurrection as well as spiritual resurrection. Let's continue. And gives them life. Even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. And as he says this, he is telling us, point number four in your outline, Jesus has divine authority to raise both the physical and spiritually. Now, we can understand this physically as Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and Jesus, at the end of the age, will raise every physical body out of their grave to stand before the Lord on the last day. However, there is a greater resurrection that Jesus performs. It is the spiritual resurrection of the heart 
of the dead spiritual sinner to believe upon Christ and put one's faith and hope in him and in him alone. You see, every new birth is a spiritual resurrection. In verses 24 through 25, we read, Truly, truly, I say to you, He who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. That's the new birth. And does not come into judgment, but has passed, now watch this, out of death and into life. It is the passing from death unto life, out of darkness and into the light. It is crossing the line from the wrath of God until unto the eternal kingdom of God. Now, how does this happen? Well, he tells us in verse 24, it is when we believe upon Christ, when we commit our lives to Jesus Christ. That's the same human perspective we've seen in John chapter 1, verse 12. Now, how does that happen? Next verse tells us the cause of our faith, the power of behind believing upon Christ. Here comes the divine perspective, as we've seen in John chapter 1, verse 13. Truly, truly, I say to you. Seems like every verse in this chapter begins with truly, truly, I say to you. Our Lord is getting our attention. Don't miss this. The hour is coming, and now is, present tense, when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. There are present resurrections that our Lord is performing, and that is the spiritual resurrection in the new birth. God must raise the sinner by the power of the Holy Spirit, enabling him to hear the voice of Christ calling his sheep to himself. My dear brothers and sisters, it is God that is always previous. We must be born again so that we can hear the voice of God and believe upon Christ for eternal life. This is why even though we can relate more to our human experience in salvation, we must understand that there is a greater truth in and through that, and that is the divine reality that God is working in and through these things for his glory and for our good. In John 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So this concludes our study of the Gospel of John concerning the new birth. This is the teaching of Christ concerning being born again. And even though some of us focus more on the human perspective and, uh, of salvation, and some of us focus more on the divine perspective of salvation, and you may even disagree with my theological understanding of the new birth, there is one thing that we all agree upon. And that is the witness and the testimony of the life that is being lived with the Spirit of Christ. This is something that should be our major focus as we study and we pray and we have fellowship with one another. It is Christ working in and through our lives. It is God using us in the situations in our lives 
for His glory. This should be our focus as God's church. It is the focus of the transformed lives by the mercy and grace of our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. This is my desire this morning to drive this message home today, that which will edify the body of Christ and bring ultimate glory to God this day and throughout eternity. 2 Corinthians 5.17. I want to just show you this new birth in the light of creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ... That's the new birth. That's being born again. He is a new creature, or some texts say creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Are you in Christ? Have you been born again? Do you want the old things in your life, your sinful habits, the things that drag you down, the things that have you enslaved, and shackled to, do you want them to be out of your life? Come before the cross of Jesus Christ. Find the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of your sins. Be washed by the blood of Christ. Become a new creation, because the old things will pass away. Behold, all things will come new. This is what the new birth looks like. It is the greatest miracle God ever performs. It is the most life-changing, soul-transforming, radical experience in your lives. I'd like you to please stand and find the insert in your church bulletin. The title of the uh, hymn is, For Your Gift of God the Spirit, by Margaret Clarkson. And as we conclude with the singing of this hymn, and receive the benediction.